Welcome to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with people who have a foot in the world of the artist and a foot in the world of the warrior. It's produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was Luke Ryan, the author of The First Marauder, which is his book uh, that has, I, I guess the fair description would be to, to say blown up on social media. At least it has on all my timelines. In the veteran and military community, there's been a lot of buzz about this book. <clears throat> I think there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, you could cynically say, well, Luke is the social media guy, coffee or die. So, of course, he knows how to get the word out about his book, and you'd be right. <clears throat> but I think it's also that he was writing out-and-out fiction. He was writing this post-apocalyptic story, first, uh, first book in a series of three, by the way. And the fact that it wasn't nonfiction, that it wasn't memoir, um, made, I think, it seem like not the easy answer uh, for a veteran author that he really was being fantastical and going to his fictional mind. And as you hear him talk about in the episode, this is a story he's been working on, you know, conceiving and conceptualizing for years and, you know, finally put to pen to paper and has been able to, you know, develop that manuscript to the point of publication. Um, but, and it, and I should also mention it's his fourth book, I think or fourth published work uh, as a standalone piece. So it's not like this was his first time putting pen to paper by any stretch of the imagination. But I think the fact that um, he had gone past the poetry that he'd been working on and he'd kind of, uh, you know, dared to go into the realm of fiction uh, was really bold. And I think a lot of vets have been impressed with that and entertained by his writing. And I think that's why it's gotten its buzz on social media. And that's all, you know, pontification and speculation on my part. What I did not know was, and I thought I'd done his, my research on Luke and on his writing and on his career thus far. I did not realize exactly how interesting a life he had had. And I'm not going to give any spoilers here. Listen to his stories, but I think he is a great example of someone living life and using art as kind of the culmination of a life well-lived and of a life spent uh, seeking adventures, seeking fulfillment, and all that, which, to be fair, is something I feel I've tried to do, and I think a lot of vets feel is something that they want to do, especially the vets that are you know trying to do something artistic now. So uh, the fact that Luke articulates that so well and is fulfilling that in his own life is really interesting and rewarding. And I think will be inspiring to everybody listening. So I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Without further ado, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director of Vet Rep, and this is the Savage Wonder of Luke Ryan. Luke, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Uh, I'm really glad we were able to figure out a time to get together and do this. So there's a lot of buzz about First Marauder. So I feel like we shouldn't mess around and do a lot of foreplay. We should really just dive right into 
right. book itself. Um, why don't we just start with uh, every writer's favorite question? What's the book about? Yeah, so it's a it's a post apocalyptic novel. It's it's the first of a trilogy. It follows a um, the first one follows a fifteen year old kid who is. It's been four years since this apocalyptic event, which was a um, kind of this ominous pandemic. And I wrote it before this pandemic that actually happened. So that was when I started writing it in so, 2018. This was uh, pre-real pandemic. Um, but so not a political commentary or anything like that. <laughs> so you're either uh, prophetic or uh, we can blame you for it, right? Yeah, one or the other. I don't know which one's which one's worse, really. Right, right. <laughs> better. Um, no, but dude, I mean, that's kismet. Boy, that was uh, incredibly topical without meaning to be. That's yeah, cool. you know, I actually, I actually based it off of a mix between. I don't really talk about the origins of it too much in the in the book because it's more about the conflicts after. Um, but I based it on um, a, what like a weaponized smallpox would look like, and then historical. Oh accounts of the bubonic plague kind of mixed together um so was so, it research did you actually do proper research on that or were you reading something you just got inspired like what if and you get everything spiraled from there i did a little bit of research um at, at first and then i i've been thinking about this whole universe for a long time so these three books sure. are the first in this universe um and then after the, I'm done with these three books, I'm actually going to leave because this is set in Tampa, Florida. I'm going to leave and do other other books set in other time periods after this post-apocalyptic event called The Red. And it's going to be, you know, they're all going to be different, you know, totally unrelated to this. And I'm kind of just universe building, but every story will have a real, they won't all be trilogies. Most of the other ones will be standalone books, I think. Um, but, you know, I want to really build this whole, yeah. Universe. I just like, I love that kind of aspect to it. And, um, but I, I had listened to a podcast, uh, Dan Carlin's hardcore history. I'm a big fan of mm-hmm. and his bubonic plague. One was great. And then I, uh, talked to my dad, who's a doctor and just asked him what kind of weaponized, you know, like virus or type thing could, could people do. And he had two, two ideas for me. And, and both of them were, were good, but one was a bit well, the first one was the weaponized smallpox, you know, because yeah. so many people aren't um, don't have smallpox vaccines anymore since it's sure. um, eradicated. So military people and like um, older people and then some people who travel a lot and opt to get it. But most people don't have it. So if that were to happen, it'd be pretty devastating. And then um, especially if it was weaponized, meaning, you know, right. it, it was specifically tailored to spread fictitious scenario, obviously. But but like it would be pretty devastating um, in reality. And then the other idea he had, which was pretty, pretty cool. And I, I got to use it in a story someday is um, well, not cool if it happened, but <laughs> pretty creative, I should say. <laughs> right. Um, is a, a um, arthritis, like uh, an arthritis virus, basically. So you send it out into a population, into a certain localized area, and a bunch of people, it's a latent biological weapon. Oh, so your fighting right. force is basically crippled, but it'd be impossible to pinpoint when they got it because it would take years to get it. But if you have these long-term thinking strategies like like China or Russia do, you know, they they have these really long, long con type, you know, strategies yeah. with this stuff, you know, you can cripple a whole fighting force. Uh well, it's almost like a Yeah, 
Yeah, it's like Havana syndrome going around. Uh, that thing. That, I don't know if you were tracking that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tangentially, I heard a couple of things about it. But yeah, I mean, just nobody really knew what it was, and people mm-hmm. were even thinking it was made up. But everybody that was working in embassies in certain locations was walking away with headaches and with some kind of brain disorder or some sickness, and nobody could really track it. And then they realized that there was some sort of sonic attack going on that probably was engineered by China or Russia or both. And, gotcha. and they've been tracking, um, especially CIA um, folks uh, to really cripple their abilities. But again, with plausible deniability and all that. Sure. So yeah. it's, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask this, I'm going to go take the scenic route to ask this question. Yeah. When I was like 16, I started writing a short story um, and I had a vision of like a bad guy coming up on a New York city subway. Cause I lived in the city and I, um, and they, there was a guy sitting in the subway car, but the bad guy came up on the platform outside and shot the shotgun through the window and killed the guy, you know, blew the guy's brains out inside the subway car. Uh-huh. And I thought, Oh, that's really badass, And that's cr- super creative of me. And then I thought, eh, I'm not really sure I feel, and this was at 16. I just, just part of me that was nagging. Like, I'm not really sure I want to put that out in the world. I'm not sure that, you know, that, that, that seems so easy to do. That just seems, I feel like I don't, I'm not really cool just throwing that out there. I'm just curious. Was there mm-hmm. any part of you that was like, hey, actually, this weaponized smallpox is a pretty good idea. <laughs> and like, was there any like uh, speed bump in your mind? Like, eh, maybe I don't want to give this idea. out. Yeah, I've thought about that. I, I've, you know, I don't know. I, I have found with my writing that I'm not as special as I thought. I was (laughs) a lot of people have come up with the same ideas. I don't know how many people have told me like older guys have told me that like, I came up with the idea for Jurassic park before Jurassic park came out, you know, like I've heard that so many times and it's because ideas, I don't know, like um, I, I, they kind of come in, in waves based on all these external factors. And, and um, I'm sure that if I've had the idea, a bunch of other people have. And, um, and the cat's kind of out of the bag on, on bioweapon you know, yeah. research and, and functionality and all that. So, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, sorry, especially ahead. the smallpox one. That's pretty, that's yeah. pretty out there. I actually did look it up because I was like, I don't know, you know, and <laughs> looked up and it's pretty right. like, there's a lot of people who, who talk about that kind of stuff um, in way further depth because really then, then I go into, because it's actually hardly mentioned in the first one as the specifics of it. What's really the focus is these conflicts after it's a setting uh, the post-apocalyptic setting, it's a little bit of a tired genre right now, but I'm, I'm really interested in it because it al- it's, it's, it allows you to take kind of American culture and immerse it in this like battlefield culture, which is, mm. you know, a lot different than what we're familiar with here most of the time. Um, Not transplanting the battlefield onto, into the United States and being able to yeah. see how that interacts. Yeah. And, and that makes total sense. Yeah. And it's just a fascinating kind of, it allows you to explore those sort of battlefield dynamics, you know, even from an emotional standpoint, as well as a practical one uh, in this, this sort of environment that we're all kind of semi-familiar with. Um, So that, that's been a really interesting, um, I mean, the book is really about, the first book is really about Tyler, this main character, learning about the, you know, politics and war. It's his introduction to those things. Um, so the, the, the post-apocalyptic setting is, has been a really, as for me has been, it was an effective sort of medium for that. And so for you personally to be writing this, this is your, I I know you had two volumes of poetry you put out and you wrote a short story that was, uh, that was published also. Right. Yeah. Um, so self-published short story. Yeah. 
Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, but at least finalized in your mind enough that you're like, yeah. hey, I'll, I'll, I'm comfortable with other people seeing this. Yeah. Um, so at this point, when you, when the idea came to you and you started fleshing out this this uh, manuscript, what was in it for you? Was this trying to get a lot of stuff off your chest? Was it something that had been bubbling up in you, just a kind of a story or a character for a long time, and you just wanted to get that out? Was there um, something topical that had happened that made you go, yeah, this is a story I want to tell now? What, what was your kind of ulterior motive, for lack of a better word, yeah. um, that was driving you in this? That's a, that's a great question. I, I, uh, it really started, this whole thing started when I was in like high school. Mm. I started envisioning this story that took place about 80 years after a post-apocalyptic event. None of the characters were alive when it happened. None of the main characters. Um, and I've still got that. And I've actually been kind of like working that in my head for, you know, now the better part of my life pretty much. Yeah. And, um, and then I started to like, I, I, I wanted, I really like stories like, you know, Lord of the Rings, even modern stuff, you know, Game of Thrones, uh, things that are really steeped in this history and they're immersed in this lore. And it, even if it's not outright mentioned, you always feel that. And I love that. So I started trying to think of things that would happen before these, you know, 80, the 80 years. And so, um, and these figures and characters and stories that you could just read that and not read anything else. And you would still feel like this was a fully fleshed out, good story and book. Um, so I started conceptualizing it there. And then when I started writing, I found that uh, the, at the beginning, not so much now, but at the beginning, I was really writing a lot of stuff with teenagers as the protagonists, um, not not like a young adult. That's not a young adult novel. You know, it's definitely an adult kind of okay. novel just because it's, you know, pretty violent uh, and stuff. And it's not um, it's kind of geared for uh, just people like myself. Um, and but I, I think I, I started doing that because it's this convergence of my military experience, you know, and like learning, going to war for the first time, going to, you know, um, learning kind of how that works and what that looks like and what that feels like and all that stuff. Yeah. And then a mix between that and uh, I was in a school shooting when I was in eighth grade. So, Were you, you know, really? that's a lot, a lot wow. different of an experience because experiencing combat as like a kid versus as a, um, you know, as a, a trained adult is a lot different. So um, the the characters that I found that I was writing were actually in age kind of squarely in the middle of those two events. So, so I, this is really like this character is kind of both of those, those things kind of in, in one. Sure. So the, the first, for example, I mean, the first, uh, there's a couple of small mentions in the first Marauder. There's a firefight in an abandoned school. Uh, and um, there's a couple mentions and things that I had that I was describing that come directly from that event, like especially the sounds, you know, like you can hear schools yeah. are like weirdly like labyrinths of hallways, yeah. cement hallways and the sound like these gunshots are there in schools are pretty ominous. Like they, they sound like, like some sort of, you know, thing like, you know, banging around these, these, all these corners that kind of there, they might be coming for you kind of this, like, right. Um, 
you know, seeing with speaking of Lord of the Rings, you know, the Balrog coming around those yeah. corners and stuff, yeah. that kind of ominous, like, yeah. oh, man. <laughs> well, that, that, those kind of institutional walls where you hear that echo and, yeah. and there's that always that impending sense of doom, you know, yep. that you can, yeah, I could, I totally re, uh, relate to that aspect of it. Yeah. Um, obviously, dude, I, I don't want to, you know, prick at uh, dried scabs here, but oh, it's fine. where was the sh- school shooting? I mean, it was because I know you lived overseas a lot. Was it over yeah. there or was it in the States? Yeah, I was overseas. So uh, I was living in uh, Pakistan or Pakistan. Yeah. Um, and it was like after 9-11. Um, so my my parents, my dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. They, they had an eye clinic in northern Pakistan and uh, that they ran. And there was a, a lot of things changed after 9-11 because all sure. the Taliban that were these people that I, I knew who they were growing up, you know, I was very familiar with them and what they did. And we would get refugees coming over because we're in northern Pakistan, which is pretty close to the border of Afghanistan and get all these people coming over. But a lot different when all the, you know, the Taliban are actual ones coming over. So that started to change the whole kind of playing field in Pakistan for everybody living there, especially foreigners, especially Americans. Um, Well, I would just say foreigners because probably like not really distinguishing between the two from the Taliban's perspective, right. uh, especially the ground level guys. And so, but you were, you were in the hinterlands. You were in, was it Waziristan or where was it? Uh, or I was, I was in the, I lived. So for most of the time that I lived there, I lived in the, uh, in the Kashmir area. So in the wow. disputed territory, but on the Pakistani side, in a, in a town called Gilgit. So lots oh, of, wow. lots of uh, interesting things happened there, yeah. from especially during like the Kargil war and the um, whole thing between Pakistan and India. And then uh, some other really intense Sunni Shiite disputes up there that didn't really like a tar- wouldn't target us. And, but, well, then that was the whole thing with my family was that like, we really cared. We really care about those people there. You know, sure. they cared a lot about us, you know, the average dude down there that like, is just like an average dude anywhere else. Like they're, they're like sure. good people, bad people, yep. you know, you can care about them as a whole, like quite a bit. And then, uh, um, yeah, it's that motivated minority like, that causes all the problems yeah. everywhere. Right. You know, most yeah. people just want to get along oh, yeah. with their lives. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. for sure. Um, and you know, especially like those poor areas, you know, they're just trying to get by a day after day and you come in with this free medical services and you know, it's like, they're, they're all about it. In fact, they specifically did went to some pretty long, pretty, uh, significant lengths to protect us there too. Um, but Problem being, you know, Taliban coming over. It wasn't the Taliban specifically that attacked my school. It was uh, so I was at a boarding school in Murray, which was uh, um, at the time, which is like an hour away from Islamabad and yeah. uh, drive. And um, that was the school that got attacked. And uh, my brother had been there for a while. That was my second year there. Just started as the second week of school. And then uh, my mom was visiting. So she was there, too. Um, but Jesus, you know, we all just there's a four gunman came in and uh and were they pakistani taliban or who, who were they did you end up um out? as far as like specific affiliation it's kind of difficult to nail it's down nebulous. i never really yeah. like uh figured that figure that out as especially on the pakistan side especially back then things super chaotic and sure complicated um but yeah that it was you know they they came in killed a few people it didn't didn't wind up killing uh any any kids thankfully because um they all had suicide vests on and stuff um but but they uh 
a couple very interesting things happened. One of the big one was that they had planned to hit during recess hours, but daylight savings time, they didn't change their clocks. So <laughs> that's, um, uh, I was just on a, on a Instagram live yesterday where we were talking about the value of daylight savings. Mm-hmm. There is an unintended consequence mm-hmm. of having daylight savings. Oh, Outstanding. Yeah. Wow. Yep. What else the best um, laid plans? Right. They had really like researched it too. I mean, they had like sat outside the school and figured out when the re, re, uh, yeah. recess times were. The only guy who was outside was a PE teacher with a second grade class. And he was kind of on the far end. So when the shooting started, he had actually used to be uh, like a missionary in Afghanistan. He knew what AK gunfire sounded like off the top of his head. So he was immediately like, okay, we're going to go hide somewhere. Um, but Jesus. wow. Yeah, they killed some staff, couldn't find anybody. It was like a ghost town as far as they were concerned because there was a big church and it was really old. And they thought that that church was a church, but it's not. It was the school hollowed out on the inside. So that's where all the kids were. So they thought because all the classrooms were like had been built inside this really old church. Um, So they thought that that's what it was. And then by the time they got to this other area that was like all classrooms, I think they were in retrospect, you know, I think about it a lot having dealt with, you know, a lot of people like that since then on my deployments and yeah. they were probably scared and they were probably like when they came in and didn't see anybody, they're like, oh man. And then they like probably blasted right. through the rest of it. And then they just kind of took off and um, they shot at slash killed whoever they came across on the and, way through. And you but, guys were targeted because there were a lot of foreigners going to school there, I'm assuming, or yeah, there were, reason? I forget how many how many kids were actually attending the school? I want to guess like two, 300. Uh, wow. Generally foreigners or like, you know, Pakistani families who for whatever reason are wanting to put their children through this like Western institution school. Um, oh, okay. So there were Pakistani families there. Some, Pakistani yeah, not, not a lot. It, it's mainly a school built for, initially built for like missionary kids. And then also, you know, you get like, aid worker kids or like government kids too, you know, stuff like that. Cause uh, it's a good, it was a British curriculum. Good, good school uh, though. Um, and, but, and I'm assuming you, so your parents had sent you away there cause they were busy in Kashmir actually, you know, in the hinterlands doing work. And so they wanted you to kind of be in a bit more of a structured environment. I'm assuming is why they sent you there in the first place. Right. In places like Pakistan, it's a tough decision for families. My definitely my family included because if you want your kids to have a good Western education, go to, you know, be able to have the option to go back to the U S and go to like a normal college and stuff like that. Um, which is kind of like par for the course for most missionary aid worker government kids is like, once you finish high school, you go back home and, you know, either go to college or figure out what you're going to do with your life. Um, so, but that level of education is tough. If, you're homeschooling, especially, I mean, these people by definition of being there, they're there to do a really specific thing, which is probably pretty intense from the workload side. So, you know, uh, whether it's medical or, or something else, uh, you know, that's going to be, it can be a little bit tough. So, yeah, you just so have that's, bandwidth. Yeah. To homeschool like that. Sure. Yeah. And we moved to Thailand after that and there's international schools in every major city in Thailand, like multiple to choose from. So that's easy. You just send them to school like you would you know, if you want them to get that West, you know, that like English speaking right. education, but in Pakistan, as it's like few and far between like the Murray Christian school, MCS, the, the school that I was at, that has since shut down too. Um, so just within the last few years. So, you know, it's, it's hard to find that education for your kids if you're out there. Um, so, 
I'm assuming that that day, um, did you come face to face with the shooters? Did you see them or did you just hear them and were able to hide without ever laying eyes on them? I peeked out the window once and saw them as they were like, I was on a second, second floor in that old church building. Okay. Peeked out the window, saw them like, you know, swing by. I just, I vaguely remember it. Like, I mean, it's just like, you know, one of those, I mean, I wasn't like freaking out, but I was obviously pretty scared and kind of, sure. um, peeked out, saw the movement. They were like wearing black and had, uh, you know, rifles, AKs, I think, and, um, pop back down. I was hiding under a desk most of the time. Um, so I was hiding under a desk in the library, me and my buddy, uh, <laughs> me and my, my buddy, uh, carved under the desk. So I've never been a, like, I'm not really like a, no, was never getting in trouble for vandalism or whatatever, but I was right. like, all right, this time, you know, like <laughs> we can do it. it's a terrorist attack on our school. Like, it's okay. So we wrote right. like Luke and Simon hiding from terrorists, August 5th, 2002. <laughs> we carved that under the desk. And no, my, my brother, when he got, he was a senior, then he was like right up there. And they like, they were like, uh, shooting people right outside of his window. And, and he like, they like barricaded the windows and stuff. And when he got married later in life, he, his, my sister-in-law, he took them back. They went to Pakistan to visit when it was a little bit like, obviously a lot safer. So right. she, uh, she took a picture of that. She found the desk and took a picture of it and sent it to me. <laughs> really? So cool. I was like, crazy. Oh man, I'm glad I have a picture of that now. Cause I'd never gotten one back then. Well, you, and you literally were desperate to make your mark on the world <laughs> in yeah. case you didn't get another chance. <laughs> yeah. Did. yeah. Yeah. No. I don't even know what, what really in- inspired us to do that. We just, just like, Oh man, this is, you know, just, just like anybody, you know, in, in a, in combat, you're like, you know, that kind of, I don't know if you call it dark humor, but kind of, you know, it's like, yeah, like, let's just do this and then right. go back to being scared again. Um, but, and how did, how did that situation end? How did it get mitigated? They ran off and um, two of them got caught and two of them detonated their suicide vest when they got cornered okay. by the cops. Okay. So the military and the cops oh, took forever wow. to get there, but they did wind up getting, they, they, by the time they got there, the, the gunmen were long gone, but. Um, so I guess I didn't want to dive into your military service uh, too soon, but I kind of, uh, I have a feeling we're going to have to go there after that story. I mean, something like that happens. And I know you obviously went to Thailand after that. And, you know, so there were several years still in between. But how did you change before and after that? I mean, there's no way that couldn't have left kind of an indelible mark on you, right? You know, yeah, it it's something I think about a lot. I mean, kids, it's, I learned then at an age when I was, you're forced to kind of reflect on yourself and um, with yeah. that kind of event at a young age. Uh, I learned that kids are resilient and, um, you know, and very malleable with kind of like understanding the world that you live in. Live in. So I would say that, you know, there's probably some underlying trauma there that, you know, I've, I've, you know, maybe will work through or am, have been working through, but I'd say like the biggest, I mean, as far as actually joining the military, I wouldn't say that it was a huge inspirational, like kind of oh, really? push toward oh, that, but it, okay. it did, it did let me know that I knew that I wouldn't freak out if people started like shooting around me. Oh. I knew that I wouldn't, uh, because I didn't really freak out then. I mean, I was scared and I didn't have anything to do. That was the biggest thing. And yeah. Um, the biggest difference between being a civilian in combat and a trained person is that you, it's not like the fear aspect. It's just that you take your, if you don't have anything to do, then 
your natural instinct is just going to be fear. But if you have something to do, like you, you know, and ideally it's trained into you. So it's muscle memory, then, then you can, uh, then you really like, you just put all that energy that would go into your fear. It goes into your, you know, into your hands, into your body and what you're doing. And, um, you know, then, then it's a lot, it's a lot easier to handle those situations, situations that I've been in there in that, and, you know, are a lot more intense than that was as far as like specific situations go. Um, but you know, it's just, uh, totally, totally different world. Um, so it wasn't uh, A to B rationale to immediately go, boy, I can't wait to join the military and, you know, get back at them or, or, you know, start being on the other side of the equation. It, yeah. it was, that was, that actually didn't, that wasn't an A to B proposition. No, uh, a, lot, played out. a lot bigger factor was knowing the Taliban growing up mm. in the nineties and then mm. seeing them. And then my country is like going to war with that same, those, this same group of people that has caused all this mayhem and destruction you know, a couple hundred miles away from my home. And, um, and then, you know, when I grew up, we're still at war with them, (laughs) you know? So like, that wasn't a short time, you know, I was in, you know, that was in, uh, I finished high school in 2007 and didn't even join the army till I was in like, you know, until 2010. So, um, well, I joined in 2009. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not, really a short journey, but that was definitely a bigger factor that. And then some people I had met some, um, former Rangers when we were in Thailand. So, uh, gotcha. and that was kind of influential. So let's, before we dive into the military thing, then, so at that point, um, when you're in Pakistan, even when you're going to Thailand, had you been writing, were you a writer by nature? Were you, were you drawn to the arts? Um, yes. or you were, yeah, okay, for sure. I, when I was a kid, I, in, in the remote area in, in Northern Pakistan, not, not the boarding school, uh, the other, the place where like my parents lived and kind of what I would consider home. That was, uh, um, it was a medium sized town for, for that area, uh, or, or well, for that area is a big town. Um, and, but we would, it was a, like a 13 hour drive from Islamabad mm. through down the, uh, um, through the Himalayas kind of like this road that would mirror the silk route up there. It's called the KKH Karakoram highway. And, uh, um, we would get like, my dad would get these really nice cuts of meat from Islamabad and he would get coolers full of them. And then like, you know, dump a bunch of ice in there and then make that shot. And then, you know, we'd have that for like a long time. Um, and he would give one cooler to our local movie store guy. So that, that dude would in return, give us free movies all the time. So my dad is a big movie nerd. Um, and so I became a big movie nerd. So I would, I was very much, so I don't know anything about nineties television, like nothing because, you know, I, I didn't grow up with it, but right. I know a lot about like all the movies and stuff. Cause I watched them all and I would walk up, I, I could walk to the store. So I would walk up there, get whatever movies and come back. And that was really the start of my love for storytelling. But I knew that I didn't have the means to make a movie, certainly not yeah. The scope of the ideas that I was having, especially as a kid. Sure. So I would just start writing them instead. Um, and I wrote, I have like a, I still have it. It's like this notebook. It's like 30 pages of like, you know, kid, kid writing. So very large or handwriting, but it's like right. pages long of a story about Boba Fett. Um, you know, and that was, so I was writing about Boba Fett before it was cool to write about man. Right. Uh, right. 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 <laughs> um, and, uh, 
And then I wrote a, f- a few more stories. Like one was about like a kingdom of like talking animals that were at war. And I, I wrote a bunch of stuff like that. Um, I actually wrote about the attack on my school and it got published in uh, my parents are from Arkansas, uh, like the Ozark area. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it got published in the like Arkansas Gazette. Uh, really? so that was pretty, wow. that was pretty cool. So that was my first published like thing. And was that your first nonfiction writing that you had done? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That would, that would have been the first time I wrote about an experience that I had. And then, you know, I wanted to, I, I was being a film nerd, you know, in high school, I tried my hand at a couple of screenplays and it was a great learning experience. And then before I joined the army, I, I wrote another one or two. Uh, and that was also really good. I mean, I'm not a very naturally talented at like anything. So I have to like, put in a, a like 10 times more reps than anybody else to get to like a normal level. <laughs> but, um, you know, totally willing to do it. Cause I love writing. And I love storytelling and I love this sort of medium, um, of, you know, both novels and, and filmmaking. And, um, I wrote a lot in the army, uh, and then I got my degree in English literature after the army. So, uh, I just kind of kept, I've just always kept going with it, whether it's a little bit of hubris and always thinking that what I wrote was, good and then even though it wasn't but enough that i'm like wow this is good i should keep doing this which is like yeah yeah, i look back and i was like oh man like (laughs) i was not i was not right but (laughs) but it it kept me writing so you know that's that's something so obviously writing didn't stay on the front burner for very long because you i mean that's a pretty hard pivot not just to join the army but did you go in as a uh, as a um uh was it the vector deuce contract or what was it? The Ranger contract? I mean, yeah. So, so, so were you, uh, so, I mean, that's a pretty big serious decision to make that you kind of can't split focus on. So I'm assuming, so what made you kind of put writing on the back burner or had it already been drifting towards the back burner by the time you made that decision? I, I have always been very like focused on the fact that I want to be a storyteller for my like life's career, but mm. I, I want to be, I, I want to have like, I want to be able to draw from experience though. And, and not so much, not so, I wouldn't say that was why I joined, but it was, I definitely had a yearning to do something. Like I always also really heavily considered, a, uh, like being a firefighter for a while, um, mm-hmm. for quite a while actually. Um, and I just wanted to do, I mean, at the time I was saying, I want to do young man stuff while I'm still young, you know, yeah, and, and that's yeah. definitely a piece of it. And I also think I, I really wanted to be able to draw and not just like knowing how to handle a weapon or, or you know, right. knowing what weapons to put into my storyline or how to react, how my characters can react to contact. You know, I use that stuff and I think it contributes to the story a lot, but, but I think that it's more these, like these, like these very, uh, these ideas that are, are way under the surface that, you know, I'm trying to explore that you really kind of have to have been there to know about. And that, that that's what I want to like try to pull out of, you know, I mean, to be a good storyteller, I think you have to experience life in order to talk about it. Right. So hundred uh, percent. It's funny. I was just talking about this uh, yesterday with somebody, but uh, I think it was Wolfgang Peterson, the, the director of perfect storm and a bunch of other movies that you mm-hmm. probably know. Um, he made a comment and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but he was talking to a film studies class 
um, and back, and he was giving them advice. And he said, well, if you really want to direct powerful films, you shouldn't be in film school. You should really go get a job as a prison guard because then you'll really get some stories and you'll really understand characters. And you'll really understand drama and conflict. And yeah. I, I think there's a downside to that advice, but I, I think that point is something that I'm seeing a lot in the veteran community where you have a lot of repressed artists that are like, yeah. man, I want to leverage my, my experience. And I don't, and, and it goes against the pop culture kind of paradigm that you, we have in the country where from nowadays, from embryonic stages as an embryo, you have to decide to go into showbiz or the arts and then pursue that doggedly your whole life. Yeah. And you know, do the Mickey Mouse Club and all the rest of it, but you, you, you'll go to uh, you'll get a, a Bachelor of Fine Arts and all that. But there's no, nothing about experience. It's all just about your your entire life path has to be determined by that career choice. And I think you, I, I would put myself in that category. I think a lot of people that I'm talking to these days are, are of kind of a throwback mentality where it's like, dude, go out and get some opinions, go yeah. have some experiences. So, you know, where have you speak? And then art is the culmination of that life. It's not the Genesis of your life that you just keep, yeah. you know, learning the, the techniques, but you're trying to bring in and onboard as much experience as you can and spend the rest of your life. Then telling those stories, I think it's a very cool and, and kind of a, new way uh the veterans are are doing art and i think yeah. that's um yeah that's awesome to hear you talk about that because i think that'll resonate with a lot of people listening um 100 and and i love that you went into the army with that in mind because i think a lot of people may not might be coy about that <laughs> like you know have you know maybe a more practical aspect that they want to talk about or you know doing for it for sure. love of country but i think I, I, I can totally relate to that. I, I mean, I went into basic at 32. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't need to be here, but I want to be here. And yeah. there were patriotic reasons and all that, but I was like, sure, yeah, it, there's, you definitely, uh, yeah, there's a love of adventure. And I think, especially for guys, maybe for girls too. Yeah. I don't know. I've never been a girl, but I know in my experience as guys, you know, you want that adventure and you want to be able to dig mm -hmm. into that a little bit. So, yeah. so for you, um, so you saw going in the army and being a ranger as an extension almost of your art as a way to, to kind of in, internalize more, more grist for the mill as it will, as it would be. Yeah. I think I didn't really know exactly how I would be, you know, involving that into my, you know, future sure. art, artistic endeavors. Um, but I knew that I would, and I was kind of, I mean, ranger battalion, you're just trying to like survive every day. So, right. you know, I was just kind of thinking about that mostly. I did, actually did most of my writing on deployments because, uh, you, had you know, downtime. even, even <laughs> heavy deployments. Yeah. Well, I mean, even really yeah. busy ones when you're not working, you're not working. And, and, you know, Ranger Bat dudes are going to be, we lived in pretty, I mean, I was in the, you know, deployed in the 2010, 2014 timeframe. So, you know, the, that, you, we lived in pretty like decent fobs or, or whatever. So we could, you know, when I came back, I, it, you would feel like pretty, even from a really intense mission or something like that, you would feel pretty safe where you're at safe enough to, you know, open up a laptop and, and chill and write some while, you know, everybody's playing video games or, or whatever. Right. Uh, I would try to knock out some writing. It was also a form of entertainment for my, for myself. I found it entertaining to do that. So that was like kind of a relaxation thing too, but what kind of writing habits did you develop? And have you kept any of them from your time in the army when you were writing then? Um, you know, I think I got it in my mind that like, 
volume is doable. Like writing mm. 300 pages is, is doable. I think that is something I developed. I more have refined. I didn't really have the time, especially in the training cycle. When I come back to the U S like the, you know, Ranger training cycle is just insane. And I would hardly write it all then. Um, sure. But when I, when I got out, that's when I really started to like, look at, I'm, I'm taking like, you know, any transitioning person is, or at least should try to take their military qualities and be like, okay, how can I apply these good qualities to the civilian ones? Cause they don't automatically transfer. You have to like put effort into. And so like, how do I take my work ethic, put it into my, you know, put it into my writing. How do I take this like discipline and how do I take this like, you know, perfection of the craft of trying to be a ranger and then put that into, you know, perfection of the craft of trying to be a writer or a filmmaker. And, and, um, so I, I've kind of really been trying to apply that as much as I can. So more of my work, those like these sorts of things that I do to get myself to go from, I have this idea for a book all the way across the finish line to now it's done and published. That's something that I've been refining more after the military, really after my degree even. Um, cause because what you were saying before, you're right. The there's this like weird modern idea of nerds and jocks, right? Like you have to be a nerd, you have to be a jock, and that's like the thing. Um, kind of a new idea. I mean, a lot of the famous writers throughout history are are super seasoned combat veterans. You know, from sure. more recent ones like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, who, you know, um, or you know, a lot a lot like older older guys. And I'm a big fan of just American literature and a lot of the great American literature, you know, figures are, you know, combat experience in some way, Walt Whitman, uh, Hemingway, um, or adventurers, you know, like Joseph Conrad, um, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, it's just crazy lives, you know, yeah. and, uh, and Stephen Crane would be probably sure, in that course, category yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, 100%. Different types of adventures, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And, so I want to ask you kind of a weird question and it's a little personal. Um, so answer as much or as little as you want, okay. but um, right. I'll, I'll preface it. I'll ante up first without just asking you to rip open a vein for me. Um, when I was deployed, it crossed my mind more than a few times that if I were to die on deployment, I would be leaving something. Um, I, I would be leaving unfinished work on this planet that like I hadn't fully achieved all of my life's goals or purposes and not even just goals, the purpose. I was like, you know, I'm, I, it was hard for me to focus on anything artistic because I was like, to do that is going to, I'm going to be having a love affair with something besides my job, my yeah. military job. And that's going to put me at greater risk. That's going to leave more unrequited feelings for that, for the artistic career. And I was like, um, and there was that sense that if anything were to happen to me, I was like, God, I will not be, um, I will not have been the full person that I wanted to be. I'll have done a bunch of stuff that I'm proud of and grateful for and all that, but there I'll, I'll be leaving something on the table. Did you ever have that feeling? Or was yeah, that actually, me? yeah, I did. I, I had that whole internal dialogue, I think. And I, I came to the conclusion that I am, when I'm writing something I find, I found pretty early on, I think probably during the army days, um, that like my stories are better if I, if, if I start to get on this like tangent and I follow, you know, I, a lot of writers will know what I'm talking about. I think, you know, following the story rather than following my idea of what I just have in my mind, you know? So I'm like, Oh, this, these things start to happen in the story. And that seat for whatever reason 
that, you know, as you become a better writer, I think you can more easily articulate, but for whatever reason, it's, it's headed in this direction. So like, just trust it, follow it, go for it. And it feels like you're, you are starting to tap into something that is beyond yourself. And you can call that whatever you want, whether it's a, some sort of spiritual experience or yep. some kind of collective unconscious psychology thing or whatever. But like, I'm tapping into this greater thing. And when I kind of verbalized that to myself, I felt that I am like a, what I'm trying, the things I'm trying to communicate with my writing are these sort of universal truths as human, ex- you know, you're exploring the human experience. Yeah. So as a writer, a storyteller, I am exploring that through storytelling and then trying to communicate that to the world. So it benefits people when they read it in some way, whether that's, you know, like an inspirational way or like kind of a, you know, an intellectual way, or maybe uh, um, like a exciting way, whatever it is, you know? Um, and so this idea of like this thing being out there greater than myself that I'm tapping into is exactly what I'm doing in the army. See, right. I'm, I'm, I'm serving this greater mm-hmm. sort of thing. So sure. if I get like, you know, if I get like blown up or, you know, shot in the face while I'm on deployment, I need to like trust that these other soldiers around me in this thing, they're going to keep like doing that. And I can, I can keep going and keep doing my part up until I can't. So mm. that's kind of what I'm like, that's still mm. how I see my writing. Cause I still think about that, you know, I'm like, Oh, you know, I'd love to not just like get in a car accident halfway through this book that I'm writing that I'm really passionate right. about. And then suddenly right. it's gone. Um, you know, so, cause I've written three, I have three finished manuscripts since this first one, then they're not out oh. there yet. So like, oh. if I don't get them out there, they're just going to sit here, you know? And so like kind of thinking about that is a long winded answer. I know, but <laughs> no, 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 it's a long winded question. So yeah. no, it deserves it. Um, um so no, sorry. that's just like, just, you know, just keep doing it until I can't, I mean, there will become a day if I, if I keep writing up until the day I die, you know, there'll become a day when I'm halfway through a book and I'm 85 and then I'll just die then. And that, so that'll be the case at some point anyway. Um, so, you know, just do as much as I can until I can't anymore. That's the exact same thing that I did in the, in the, in the army, you know, in combat, just do as much as you can until you can't anymore. And then at that point, it doesn't matter anyway, because you know, you're, you're off to the next place. So I want to ask you, I mean, you, you have a great outlook and it seems to me a very balanced a mature outlook on the way you integrated your art in your army time. How did the army change you though? Um, obviously did four combat deployments. Yeah. Did you see that? I mean, I, I can imagine how it changes you as a person and that can't help but change your art, but I'm specifically yeah. interested in for your writing. Did you find that stories you had thought you would want to tell beforehand, you suddenly no longer had an interest in did you find suddenly they got a lot more mature um, and not necessarily gruesome or gritty, but just mature. They, you just had yeah. deeper ideas about them. How did you find it artistically that, that your time in the army uh, changed you? I actually was starting to lean away from this whole like sci-fi fantasy post-apocalyptic stuff a little bit. Uh, and I was getting more into this sort of like indie drama type stuff until I joined huh. the military. And then I was back to the same stuff that I was as a kid. I was like, you know what? This is, I love this stuff. Like, this is really cool. But uh, answer B to your question in that, like, it was much, I think it got, gets more and more, the more life experience I get in general, the more mature that this, you know, um, that my writing gets. So it means I have to be listening to what's happening around me, you know, absorbing my life experiences, even after the military. Um, 
And, you know, I, I think that it, it changed it in the sense that, yeah, it made it more mature. The subject matter that I'm talking about, I've, I can talk about a lot more nuance is one big thing. I think, you know, something like grief, uh, even if it's not on the battlefield, the battlefield, this is my like whole spiel that I always say the battlefield distills every human experience down to its most pure form and you Mm -hmm. experience Mm -hmm. it in that pure form. So, you know, grief, courage, fear, you know, uh, anticipatory fear or direct fear, you know, all these different things. And so like, you know, it's easier. You really have this, if you've really felt grief in the raw like that, you know, if you're describing in the context of some fictitious sci-fi spaceship story, but there's this grief element, you can add this level of nuance to it if you know how to do that. And there's a lot of craft you have to learn to get there. But and if you can translate that the right way, you know, you really can, I mean, you really can make it powerful. And that's what like, like Hemingway did that a lot. You know, pretty much every one of his books is based off of some life experience that he had fictionalized, you know, the main character maybe isn't like a fiction version of him. It might be somebody that he knew or met, but, but then he takes those real experiences, applying it there. um, You know, even if it's just these like pure distilled ideas, like courage, right. Yeah. Um, You know, so I, I would say nuance and maturity and just that exposure to these things that, you know, you, you would not get exposure to otherwise anywhere else. Uh, yeah. And so when you, cause you, since you're, you've kind of been conceptualizing first Marauder for a while, you know, since you're 15 or, the, ish, or, or, or the universe. Yeah. The first Marauder the came after the okay. army, I think. Um, oh, it did. Okay. Yeah. All right. So there wasn't like anything, even chicken scratches you could go back and look at and go, Holy crap. Have I changed a lot since then? This There's, is all still in your mind a lot. Well, so I remember the the whole main story that I've got. It, it, there's a whole story to it that I haven't written or anything yet that I'm going to after I'm like 20 years deep into this thing that right. I'm doing. Uh, right. <laughs> so I'm not there yet. But that story has already like unrecognizable from mm-hmm. what it was when I was in. And, and the military changed a lot of it, I think. It, it's, it's a lot more um, just nuanced, mature, you know, it's, it's, it's very much just kind of a post-apocalyptic action story that I had in my mind that I made up to, you know, mm-hmm. pass the time when I was lying in bed and couldn't sleep. Um, so right. right. Like that has changed a lot, but even, even the, actually the first Marauder. So it's a trilogy. There's a big scene in the second book at the climax of the second book. That was actually the first thing that I conceptualized. Um, it's like the big fight in the second book, basically uh, that I conceptualized probably while I was in the military, maybe, maybe it may have been after, I I don't remember when, Um, but it was more, I was thinking of, instead of writing these books, I was just kind of like, wow, I should make like a little mini Wikipedia about this whole universe. And so I had that in for this one group in, uh, I don't remember if they were even in Florida or not. And when I first came up with it, but um, they may have been. So I had that for this, this event, this fight had happened. And uh, so that, that, kind of was the seed and you know i'm sure it's totally different than what it was when i thought about it then i finished the second book already so you know that's already done um but sure well i was gonna ask so did you because this is a trilogy mm-hmm. did you think hey i really do have to write all three books before i ever release that first one so i can make sure that everything ties together and 
is reverse engineered and makes sense at the end the way it does at the beginning? They're they're kind of a disjointed is a negative word. They're kind of not mm. so associated with each other. Okay. Tyler's 25 in the second book and he's 50 in the third one. So they're like okay. they're very like the 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 arc for each book is is on its own, but like the um there's like a there's like a thematic arc that kind of goes across all three. So I kind of made it easy on myself with that in that regard. It's not like a direct one after yep. the other. Gotcha. Um so I did I didn't write, I wrote the first one. And then I had, I wrote the second one during the pandemic while I was living in New York in an underground apartment, just kind of locked down. So I was just in my cave writing for hours a day. Uh, <laughs> that's um, amazing. That's like Paul Schrader and taxi driver. That's just, yeah. that's just oh, getting after yeah. it, man. That's just doing exactly. some work. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a great place to be um, oh, uh, creatively, not necessarily for life, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> creatively, it's yeah. an awesome place to be. Yeah. Um, so if you don't mind, let's talk a little shop. When, yeah. when you, uh, Obviously, we're living in a time where we can't help but being told how polarized the, the country is. We have topical stuff thrown at us all the time. Every piece of pop culture seems riddled and inundated with ulterior motives and second levels of meaning. And hey, you're supposed to draw this conclusion from it. How much, does, how much topical influence did you want to download into, this, into these books? And how much did you try to and how much did end up? getting into the books or was it really just completely born of your own influence of your own ideas, your own perspectives, um, and your own kind of, uh, ethic, I guess you could say, yeah. um, and morality. That's a, that's a great question. I, I haven't, I haven't been asked that before. And I think that it's something that I think about a lot though. I try to leave any sort of political thing or political sort of you know, thing that's going on out of, out of my books, you know, whether it's, and, and that's intentional. It's not because I don't care about those things uh, because I, sure. I do, right. A sure. lot of them I do, but I don't think it's effective in communicating those ideas or issues that to, to hand, like kind of ham fist it right into a story or onto, you know, my social media feeds or whatever. I think that in order to change somebody's mind, it takes a whole chain of it either takes a direct relationship with them, which, you know, I don't have with all every single one of my readers. Right. But it either takes this direct, long personal relationship with like somebody. And then even then it's a maybe, right. Everybody's right. got a family member that's never going to listen to them or right? stuff like right. that. Or, or it takes a long chain of events of people, right. It's like the movie inception. You're incepting these ideas into people. So you have an idea like, um, you know, something that's a lot of it, it, the issues are around, let's see, like this concept of freedom, right? So like the, the, should you, should people be allowed to own their own weapons? Right. And whatever you think about that, you need to like break that idea down past its political buzzfeed or buzz word, right. excuse me, topics right. and break them down. And if you can convince them of the base level thing, they're going to naturally make their way up to the, whatever political decision it is. That's kind of where you're standing at too, because you're helping them understand it the way that you're understanding it. The problem with that is that most people haven't done that, like deep dive into it, right. you know, like what, what does it mean to be free specifically? And what, you know, what does that actually like, how does that look? What does that function? I mean, one of the, for example, one of the, the things that I, in a post-apocalyptic world is very free, right? Right. Right. But it's also with freedom comes, you know, 
because people say it comes responsibility, that's because freedom in itself is it's dangerous, right? It's dangerous. Like no safety. You're, you're, yeah. People sometimes are they're they're spitting out these facts as if like if we get freer, the statistics of like crime and stuff may go down. You know, like these specific crimes, they'll list out. You know, whether it's gun violence or some other types of violence, like oh yeah, they'll they'll go way down because of this. And you know, depends on, depending on the specific argument that may may be true or maybe not. But what you really need to help people understand is that like, if you are free, things are going to be a bit more dangerous probably because people have this, the freedom to do whatever they want. And that might, that might be hurting other people. Uh, And in a post-apocalyptic world, it's a lot of freedom and a lot of hurting, but you know, how much, and this is in the later books actually that I'm getting to is how much control are we exerting on, on people? And you start to have these conversations. I think when you break political issues down, that are so much deeper than just what's being talked about. And you're talking about these very human mm. issues that are like really emotional too. Um, you know, and you're, you're doing almost case studies on yeah. like the really baseline ideas that now have nothing. You can even put it in a context that has nothing to do with the political issue you're talking right. about. Right? right. Like a huge hot button issue. And I'm not going to get into the actual argument itself, but huge hot button issue is abortion, right? And it's this super contentious issue and people argue it terribly on both sides of the art, you know, because they're, they're, they're not, they're arguing like they're coming up with all these straw man arguments for this other side, but it comes down to either the value of like human life or the value of women's rights, right? And those two issues you can, and it's a lot more complicated than that because you have this, like, when does human life start sort of line, but you can take those two issues and you can start to work on those in totally different contexts. Uh, immigration is the same way, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to convince people to be nicer to immigrants, you know, that are coming in, right. This is like this super basic narrative that you hear all the time, right. Stop just saying that to people and start coming back and being like, Oh, this person, you know, um, or, or like, racism, you know, this person looks different from me, right? So how do you convince someone to treat them the same? You have to like go deeper down onto this, like these basic ideas, not just looks different, but are different, you know, in other ways. How do you, how do you teach people? How do you foster a, a sense of open-mindedness to people who are different from you? And how can you, and you can teach that in a way that has nothing to do with whatever it is you're talking about, whether it's race, religion, or something else. So you mean like boiling those arguments down to their actual core essentials and then transporting them into a whole different world, a whole different universe where you can then examine each of those pieces almost in a vacuum, right? Yeah. Yeah. And even then, I think you still need to understand that you're only one step in in convincing these people like something. I just, I work in the social media world. Like, it's funny to me when people are like, oh, I just say the truth and people don't listen to me, like in the comment section. Right. It's like, right. well, if they listen to you because of one comment that you made, then they're just going to listen to the next guy, the next comment that right. they hear. Like it takes a lot to convince someone and it's a whole process. And if you don't have a re- direct relationship with them, like one, you're just not going to change their mind on the comment section. Two, like, uh, it, you know, understand that you are one piece in a, in a person's whole life of their relationships and all you can do is try to maximize what you're communicating to them in the most effective way. And that's all you can do. There's not, you just, you can't do any more short of, you know, having this personal relationship with someone. So. Well, uh, let me, let me dovetail that back into uh, 
the first Marauder. Yeah. Do you find that in a post-apocalyptic setting, it's difficult to avoid allegory? Um, because I almost was, everything can be put into that vacuum. You mean like unintentional allegory? Like, yeah, like I mean, or reading into it where there's nothing or. Yeah. Cause I, cause I feel like, I feel like you're making a strong case and I, I that I'm very open to, that I think makes a lot of sense that you're, it's easy to boil things down or not easy, but that it lends itself. The post-apocalyptic setting lends itself to boiling cool philosophical, moral, ethical arguments down to their core components and examining them in a different context, in a different light. And that post-apocalyptic setting kind of gives you that ability. But then it, it, just because it is so sparse, the setting is sparse and you can design your own rules for that world. It does kind of naturally, uh, and I, even just in pop culture, if you think of the post-apocalyptic movies, whether it's Total Recall or The Road, or anything, there's almost inherently a political, and I don't mean Republican, Democrat, but just a political no, I, yeah, message about how people associate and how people, and, and just and kind of examining different kind of moral or philosophical arguments, because you kind of can't avoid an almost allegorical approach when you're dealing in a post-apocalyptic setting, because everything's stark and you can, and you're creating yeah. kind of just clear lines of choices and character decisions and all that. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, it, no, it, totally. Yeah. I, I will say that like the way I just described it kind of insinuates that I'm taking a political idea and then boiling it down from there. And I think that's what you should do if you want to address those issues first. Mm -hmm. But I would say the issues that I'm more interested in addressing, you know, this book is very much about, it's less about political issues and more about, um, you know, I boil, I wanted to boil down things like ex first exposure to war. First yeah. exposure. So the ideas are less something emotional, more soldier stuff. Uh, yeah. They're more like soldiering type stuff, which is, which is things that I think are just as important to boil down and communicate to people. But yeah. I'd say they're less political in nature. The pol political stuff that I found myself running into would be like when he starts. So one of the main themes of the book is um, learning about war and then learning about politics in the sense that like exposing yourself to these very complicated uh, interpolitical sort of mm. conflicts. Mm -hmm. um, but they're between like mayors of, of these warring towns in, in the first mm -hmm. Marauder. Okay. And it's less about them being allegories for this or that. In fact, I worked hard to try to make it so it wasn't that. Um, yeah. And then more about just focusing on the fact that like this kid is learning, hey, these things are way more complicated than I realized. And also, you know, these people are not either just like straight up good guys and straight up bad guys, you know, like I thought. This yeah. is a very complicated like whole thing. Yeah. Some people think that everything they're doing is necessary. Some people, you know, are, are deliberately taking advantage of other people. They might be in a relationship with each other because it's beneficial. But then like there's all these other things like it's really complicated. I found that just with like, you know, working in the military, anybody, you know, and paying attention to the military politics and then like the political sphere of like, especially as it relates to the war um, and how that affects your day-to-day -day job, like as a ranger on target. And then also like Taliban politics and, and, um, just all of these like weird internal kind of things that those are more the ideas that I was trying to tackle. And, um, I would say I, I tried to stay away from those sort of allegorical type things, unless it was an allegory for something like, 
this thing about being a soldier or this sure. thing about being sure. a, um, you know, a kid in, in a conflict or a mentor to a, to a, someone who's new to a conflict, stuff like that. No. And I think that's, that's the more timeless path to take. And I think that's, that's wise, not just on a storytelling level, but I think just on a relatability level, I, I think everybody can relate to that. And um, yeah. that, that makes complete sense. I want to talk a little bit more technique. I know you got to go soon, sure. but I want to wrap up with just some, some technical stuff. So obviously you have a day job working a coffee or die. Yeah. When do you write? Is this a nights and weekends huh. thing? When, when do you squeeze this in? So I have like a rule that I do, and I would recommend this to anybody who wants to, who is not writing for a living <laughs> um, as far as like, which is hey, most people, right? Yeah, sure. exactly. I mean, um, and I would, I would recommend writing five minutes every day. And that's, that's what I've landed on. So, well, I, I, I really rely on two things. One is meticulous outlining. So if you can see, this is my outline for the book that I'm writing now, which is the third Marauder book. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I have my own system of outlining that works really well for me. I just write every scene on an index card and I have three acts for my books in general. Um, going back to me being a movie nerd, um, uh, even in my books. Um, so, you know, and then I have, I just take one postcard down and then fill in the blanks and I can see this whole story in front of me. I take, I take one or index card, excuse me, uh, down. And then I just am like, okay, now this is the scene that I'm writing. What's the obstacle to this scene? What's going on? And then, um, how can I insert the art into this scene? Cause I don't have, you know, so that, that pretty much negates my writer's block every time. Uh, so that, because I know what I'm writing about, it's just right. a matter of putting the words onto the paper. Um, the second piece is this five minutes a day rule that I have where, uh, and it doesn't count if I'm writing an article or, uh, writing right. poetry or anything else. It has to be the project, whatever the project is, you know what it is, whatever you want to be working on. It has to be that if you work on other stuff, that's great, but it has to be the thing that you need to work on, uh, five minutes a day. Yes. It, it adds up over time. And, you know, that definitely helps for sure. Yes. Uh, it usually cascades into more than five minutes, especially if you're locked in and, and, you know, it's going to be 20, 30, depending on how much time you have, but everybody has five minutes a day. I am like insanely busy all the time and trying to like, you know, do this job that I've got is super time intensive, um, very like mentally, you know, like engaging for me all day. And then uh, including weekends too. And then, uh, um, also, you know, it just, if I only have five minutes, that's still good. But the biggest thing that it does is it keeps me creatively engaged into the yeah. story. Yeah. So I'm always hopping back in. My mind is always there. It's always easy to, to hop back in because I was just there yesterday and the day before that and the day before that it's, it's, um, and in fact, for this third Marauder book, I've, uh, I've had to do a lot more research for it just because of the nature of the story. And that's really took me out of that five minutes a day. Cause I had to do a bunch of research to start it. Oh. And I'm just getting back into that. And like, it's so, it's so nice to be able to get back into that. Cause there's any, I, I can do, if you, if you don't have five minutes a day, like you need to seriously reevaluate like your schedule because five minutes, you know, is, is easy to find, you know, and I can do it on my laptop. I can do it on my desktop. I can do it, you know, anywhere. Cause I write off of Google docs. So it's deliberately, so I can do it anywhere and block out five minutes, do it. You know, I'm engaged. I can come back to it and pick up where I left off. Uh, those two things, 
you know, is why I wrote so much. I mean, I probably wrote like five, 600 pages over the pandemic, just from, of material. I wrote, I rewrote the first Marauder while I was finishing rewriting it. The sequel I had written like a third of, and so I finished the sequel and then I wrote a, I wrote a, I wrote a screenplay and I was like, this would be better as a novella. So I wrote it into a novella. Um, and then I got like halfway through another book that I finished after the pandemic had kind of wind, wind down or, um, gotten to where it is now. And so I really, I wrote a lot. So I really perfected that system. And since things have opened back up, I've I've had to reevaluate, but that five minute rule still stands true for me. It's, it's that I live and die by that. That's like how I I get stuff done. Um, So is it fair to say, and I'm not trying to be glib about this, but is it fair to say that as opposed to write drunk and edit sober, you are outline sober, then write drunk, then edit sober. Like you really, it seems like you, I'm going back to your first point, but do you, you really prioritize the outline um, before you get into the, the actual mechanics, the nuts and bolts of writing and, and just doing yeah. free from you build that construct first. Is that fair to say? Yeah, for sure. I wouldn't say that I do it sober, but yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> right. it's, I love the outlining phase because I can like, I have all these ideas. I think a lot of writers are like this. You have all these ideas about this really cool story and I just have my boards and I'm like, this scene is sick. Like, boom, yeah. put that yeah. right in the middle of the middle board. And then I just start like doing that and I start filling this out and you see the story come to life in front of you. It only, if I'm on a roll, this one took me longer. This one probably took me a couple of weeks, but if I'm on a roll, I'll, I'll do it in a couple of days. You know, it's just like writing all this stuff down and, you know, you get yeah. to see the story come to life. And then when you start writing it, it's fun too, because now you can be like focused on the scene, like hyper-focused on the art of writing it. Right. Like, yeah. You know, what's the conflict here? What's, what are the, th- so say the theme is uh, for the first Marauder, right? Discovery of war, discovery of, of politics as it pertains to war. Um, you know, this kid being exposed to the real world violence, stuff like that. Um, you know, all the, these kind of themes or, or whatever you want to call them. Um, I'm, I can insert that into every scene in a, you know, whether it's a, uh, obvious way or a very subtle way, you know, I can like really make that an undertone to the whole thing. And a lot of writers will agree that this whole process is a lot like being an architect as much as it is yeah. being a writer, because you're structuring this story. So, well, that's that a very screenwriter is. approach, definitely to, to have the scenes and outline them ahead of time and allow you give yourself that construct. It seems like that was you, that, that's really been your muscle memory is that screenwriting basis that you built this all from, right? Yeah. I mean, that's very perceptive because I literally learned it from a screenwriting book. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, my favorite, which screenwriting book did you, did you story by Robert? Mead. Oh yeah, sure. One of my favorite, sure, it's my favorite book on writing actually. And yeah. it's, um, it's helped me in my narrative non-screenplay, you know, type stories that I've written since then. And uh, um, that's where I learned this process. I, I've made it my own a little bit. I'm trying a new thing now where I write the scene and then I also write um, like, the emotion elicited by that scene, even mm. if it's a subtle one. So oh, like, cool. a, yeah. like a kind of the sense of impending doom or, you know, like grief, or it doesn't have to be super dramatic, you know, like a minor conflict between characters. But so every scene has like a, this emotional charge to it a little bit, even if it's a, a, the pacing wise, it's a low point. It's like a relax after a big firefight. It's still got this, like, you know, after the, the, the quiet, after the firefight, that's an emotion right there for sure. Yeah. And yeah that's, I can write that down on there. And then another new thing I'm trying is I'm also writing what is the, one of the characters intent and then the obstacle. So intent, 
being, what are they trying to do? It could be a really, really simple thing. Like they're trying to go through that door. An obstacle is they're like, you know, their friend is trying to have, you know, trying to start an argument with them and then keeping like, you know, physically like stopping them from going through that door or something could be very non-dramatic, but it's still like this, but that one scene, you know, then you can start to be like, Oh, he, he like shuffles left and the other guy shuffles, you know, shuffles left too. And then he's keeps talking and the other guy's like kind of being quiet and trying to go. He shuffles, right. The other guy shuffles, right. Now you have this mini conflict here that uh, is, is interesting. And that helps. That's easy with the big scenes, the firefights, but it really helps with those scenes that are like, you know, a lot of these note cards I've got behind me, they're, they're like uh, planning for battle, you know? Yep. Like I need that. I need yep. to be talking about the dynamics of the battle that are coming up, especially on a strategic level. Um, this particular book is like a total war scope. It's a lot bigger of a scope than, than the first Marauder. So, you know, it's a strategy, but I can't just have a bunch of dudes talking like you go left, I'll go right for like four pages, you know, and yeah, like, sure, sure. you know, you need this, this, uh, even if it's subtle, this, these things to carry it through. And so emotion elicited and then intent and obstacle are things that I'm putting on all these cards too. Just out of curiosity, have you ever just sat down, maybe even inspired by a conversation or something you eavesdropped or overheard or a person you just met that's an interesting character and just freeform written? And how did that work out if you did? Um, I have, when I was in Afghanistan, my dad told me a few times, like if something big happened, just like write it all down, just like word vomit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really glad I did that. Cause I know I've never been good at journaling. So I always, I, yeah. I don't really like writing nonfiction about myself very much. Um, I've done it like a handful of times when I felt that it was important, you know, for whatever I was writing to communicate that. Um, but, but I, I am glad I wrote those. I, they're just for myself. I don't, I don't, you know, share them with people. It's just, uh, um, so that, that was helpful. That's probably the closest I've gotten. I do base characters off of people. I know sort of, they're kind of like, I'll be thinking of them while I'm writing dialogue or thinking of them while I'm, you know, or a combination of people, yeah. uh, is a big one that I do a lot. Um, so I kind of do that. I, I haven't really, I really get hyper-focused on these big projects that I'm working on. Um, yeah. I did take a step back when I was writing poetry to really try to focus on that, that craft. And, um, I did more of that probably then I would have something and then I would just write a poem about it and it would be not that good, but I would, then after that, I would refine it. I would refine right. it and try to make it actually good. So. Right. right. Uh, um, listen, dude, I know you have to go, so I don't want to hold you up, but um, yeah. oh, God, this is super interesting. And um, cool. I can't wait. I've, I've ordered the book. Um, it's coming to me. I can't wait to read it. I know there's a lot of buzz um, about it. Everyone should be going out and reading it. And I think um, kind of seeing how the sausage is made is going to mean a lot to people. Um, yeah. Hearing kind of some of the technique and, and some of the, the life work and just the technical work that you put into writing it. Uh, I think it's going to make it uh, I, I can't wait to read it even more now. No, I really appreciate you having, having me on and you know, a, I'm a super nerd about all this stuff. So I, I love, I can yap on about it for forever. So, <laughs> well, listen to be continued. Cause I would love to talk more about it. Um, cool. But dude, this is great, Luke. I really appreciate you making the time, man. Right on. Thanks so much for having me. No worries. Okay. So that's the show there. Cool. Um, Great. Thank you, man.
I really yeah. appreciate it. And uh, thank you. Really great conversation. Um, so much cool. more stuff. We could have done another three hours there, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that was great, man. Um, so listen, uh, this will come out on Monday. Okay. And um, yeah, hit me up anytime, man. You great. know, yeah. And, and just for uh, shits and giggles, just to put it in the back of your mind, but you know, we're doing um, our whole theater is built on the premise of veteran playwrights. Yeah. If you ever so choose to direct your powers towards plays, um, it's ten thousand dollars for a first prize winner. Okay. And, um, just saying, we have ongoing six month competitions. But cool. I'm telling everybody because I know novels, movies, poems are kind of the thing right now. Um, but we're trying to cultivate a cadre of veteran playwrights. So um, I'm, feel I'm free. I'm a big to- fan of. Uh, um, well, yeah, big. Uh, I did the master class from uh, Aaron Sorkin. His, oh, his yeah, sure. master class was super cool. Uh, you know, from a craft standpoint, those are like, okay, but just from like an inspiration standpoint and just, yeah. you know, hearing those guys talk is really cool. So, um, you know, that, that, that kind of got me interested in it. And from a film standpoint, I've always wanted to think about these singular location type. In fact, right. my novella was based on that. It was based on, a, um, uh, and I can send that to you. If, I can send you the screenplay version if you want. Um, sure. But yeah, it's, loves it. it's, it's a single, it's a two location uh, it's a drama. It's a sci-fi, but it's based on one space okay. station, and that's oh it. cool. Oh, that's freaking badass! Yeah, just like yeah, a, dude, it, yeah. totally. I think there's just so much variety to it. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm trying to put the word out to people so the vets know that we will try to make this a, a viable life path if they're talented yeah. and they want to go down there. So anyway, cool, man, but that's dude, awesome. I, listen, I love that. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, I love I love to see your your novella. That'd be awesome. Cool. Um. Hey, brother, I'll let you run. But yeah. Stay in touch um, right if it gets weird and, and we'll talk. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. No, likewise. It was a pleasure. Talk to cool. you soon. Later. That was the Savage Wonder of Luke Ryan. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. The opinions expressed do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker that spoke them. So check out what's going on with us. You can check out uh, what's happening in at VetRep a number of ways. Probably the best catch-all way to do that is to go to VetRep.org, which is our website, and at VetRep.org, again, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. You can find uh, out everything that's going on with us, buy tickets to our live shows, subscribe to our literary blog, follow our podcast, like literally everything's there on the website. But... If you want to be a little bit more selective, you can go to Instagram where we're at Veterans Repertory Theater or Facebook where we're also at Veterans Repertory Theater, or you can go find us on Twitter at Vet Rep Theater. Now, as I say every week for Facebook and Instagram, I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. So repertory, for those that aren't aware, is R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y. So again, Veterans Repertory Theater, and theater is the American spelling E-R not R-E. If you like the written word, if you love reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, subscribe to our literary blog, again, at vetrep.org backslash now hyphen playing. So when you're at the vetrep.org website, look for now playing, which will be on the top tab, hit it, and you'll see the options to buy tickets, subscribe to the literary blog, or subscribe to the podcast. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, we would deeply appreciate your five-star review, because that matters. If you want to submit your work 
to the Veterans Repertory Theater or to our literary blog, go to vetrep.org and go to our submissions tab. This would be a very savvy move if you have any interest in writing at all, because right now and for the near future, we have our playwriting competitions going on. So if you want to try your hand at playwriting, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. We have cash prizes for the top three winners of both our 10-minute playwriting competition and our full-length playwriting competition. So it's worth your time to try to gin up something and send it to us or work on it over time and send it to us when you're ready. We would love to see what you have. Um, Of course, if you want to write anything creative, fiction, creative nonfiction, poetry, you can always submit to our literary blog. To do all of that, go to our website, vetrep.org, and find the submissions tab, and that will walk you through everything you need to know. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.